0: Alright, so we've been in Second Corinthians for a bit. First, I want to point out a correction for myself, or at least a clarification. Um, so page 2, um, at the top of it, I have clarification and correction. So first, I brought this up last week, um, not during the sermon, but I think, I don't know, there was some point I brought it up last week. Uh, I realized that I had made an error, or at least not been uh, clear enough or explained enough about a certain text. So uh, two weeks ago I preached the last verse in chapter 9. Paul is thanking God for the gift um, that is the gift from the Corinthians that they're giving to the churches uh, in Jerusalem or the church in Jerusalem, which is certainly included, but uh, it's obvious that he's giving thanks for more than that, and I don't think I explained any of that. So I have the text there for you, and so there's the indescribable gift. Um, So the indescribable gift seems to be the gift of the new covenant administration of blessing in the communion of the saints and the communion that we have with Christ, which would include the gift of liberality, which would result in a gift from Corinth to the church in Jerusalem. Um, So I just, I don't think I explained anything beyond just literally the gift of money. So I wanted to clarify that, make that plain that uh, what's being talked about as the indescribable gift is, is more than that. So I'm not sure if... Uh, I think it's it. So hopefully that makes that more clear. Okay, so let's think about... Um, let's think about 2 Corinthians as a whole. We are in part two. So part one is written principally to the majority with, with, with whom Paul is pleased. He's writing a book about comfort... Through suffering, And he's trying to encourage the faithful majority to deal with the suffering that's coming from having these local officers that are schismatic, they are destructive to unity, there's other people siding with them, and he's trying to give them strength to carry on and to continue to see reformation happen. We get into part two, and this is to the minority. And to the super apostles. And so there's sort of this ongoing rebuke, and this is those who are sort of following after the example of those who are opposing Paul. So, chapter 10, he begins to talk in terms of a sort of warfare, um, which is uh, warfare is not peaceable, it's warable. How do we turn war into an adjective? Warlike? Bellicose. Bellicose. There we go. There it is. Alright, so it's more bellicose rather than peaceable, but he's peaceable in the sense that he's fighting in order to bring about peace. So 2 Corinthians 10, 1 through 18, go to the bottom of page 2. So This whole section is Paul's assertion of his authority and the vindication of the prerogatives that he is exercising as an apostle. So he's defending his use of authority and there's all sorts of nitpicking at Paul that goes on and he responds to it here and uh, so let's let's see how he deals with things so verse chapter 10 verse 1 now I Paul myself am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ who in presence am lowly among you but being absent in bold toward you so what he's doing now there's this complaint going around about Paul that he's bold on twitter And then when he talks to you face to face, he's a mouse. This is the complaint about Paul. And so he writes lionized emails and is sweet as southern tea in your physical presence. And so that's the complaint. And so Paul is grabbing that by the horns and saying, all right, I am writing this to you, but I'm still controlling my strength. And I'm doing this, the one who's lowly with you in your presence physically. I'm being bold with you now while I'm absent. So he's just, he's grabbing that. He's trying to remove the sting of the charge. All right, fine, yes. I'm being bold with you right now, and I have been lowly or humble with you in your presence. So... First of all, I want to get us to take hold of some of the virtues that get talked about here. It's the one that's translated as meekness, is proutus. and that term could be translated gentleness, meekness, that's great, either of those is fine, but the idea here is sort of this controlled strength. So we need to, we need to reclaim the words gentleness and meekness and remove them from a sense of inaction or inertness. They are about controlled strength. So... This is not flipping out. This is not being a doormat. This is about a steadiness. A steadiness to do what is right and to have appropriate responses under control as they are needed. Now, the next word that gets listed there that's translated as gentleness is the word that I have much praised. Epiocasis, you can see it in other forms, and I've reminded you of William Perkins' book Epheueia, so Christian moderation or equity, uh, is how he deals with it in the book. So this book, th- this term, uh, again, me- gentleness, meekness are fine, but the idea is sort of moderation in terms of the wisely picking a course to not be too lax or be too stringent on the basis of the law and evidence to evaluate the situation. So the law gives us sometimes a range of things we could choose. So think about this. The 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 Mosaic civil law gives maximum penalties and the victim has a right to ask for up to the maximum but can also ask for less. And to, to determine which thing when there's an ambiguity in law in terms of what is this circumstance. Is this circumstance like with theft for example, if somebody has stolen something willfully there's a difference between that and the idea of causing accidental harm to property destroying property on purpose versus accidental destruction of property. So you have these different ranges of things and how you characterize things. So there's the how certain are we about the characterization of something? Um, You know, what is the thing that should be taken? So a judge has to exercise moderation in terms of being careful um, about the determination of what a person is guilty of. And a victim has to be careful to ask for things that are... You know, they don't always want to go to the fullness of what the law would allow. Now, in both cases, at the same time, both a judge and a victim do not always want to give the most lax because laxity breeds a contempt of law and order, and laxity results in a disorder when those who need stripes, need some sort of chastisement or pain, when they fail to receive it, it can result in a chaos. It can result in an overthrowing of order and a failure to protect the rights of the innocent. So this comes down to thinking about the careful control of strength and the wise choosing of how to use that strength to to what extent to be either more lax or more stringent. And so those are the concerns to be dealt with. So early on, in a conflict, right, we should generally err on the side of becoming, uh, being more lax. We should be more careful, more patient, and explain ourselves. The more we explain ourselves, the more we explain duty, the more we remove ambiguity, the more it is obvious that a person is committing heinous, wicked sin, the more it becomes your duty to be rigorous, strident, stringent, the controlled strength, it is obligatory that the person exercising the strength controls it to be powerful in destroying and removing enemies. And so this idea of meekness and gentleness or controlled strength and a moderation of the choice of reactions are based upon in part context. The other thing is, people who are not in authority should generally be treated More lightly than people who are in authority. Authorities have a greater responsibility. The Lord Jesus Christ looks like a real jerk when he's talking to teachers. And he looks like he's extremely nice when he's talking to people who are not teachers. And that's, he's not being a jerk. He is appropriately fighting false teachers. You see that with the Apostle Paul as well. And so, what we find is there are two significant things to think about. The circumstances of a conflict, the length of the conflict, the clarity of communication in the conflict, and the ranks of the people involved. When an officer is mistreating a person who is under their authority, and the person under authority does not react properly, should we focus on the person who's under authority not reacting properly or on the abuse that the officer has exercised? Who has a greater responsibility? The reaction is typically for people to focus on the person under his responsibility because they're typically reacting more strongly, and they're also less mature. But the one that should be focused on is the one who abused the authority. So when there's a fight, for example, between a husband and a wife, husbands, we have authority, we should be the ones to own our stuff first. Now, it's possible for a wife to obviously react or to act in a totally unacceptable way and provoke a husband, and so that can be a weaponizing of trying to use the rank of the husband against him. If you're, you're losing and you try to like lash out, you could try to make it so the husband loses because he's the one in authority, and if he messes up, then game over. That's not the way it works. You want to evaluate the whole situation. But I'm talking about all the things being equal, if both people fail then the husband needs to take a greater sense of responsibility in the leading. So, we see that also with parents and children, and we would expect that with employers and employees. So this general principle of control, when we think about the self-control and we think about the display of moderation, wisely picking a course to not be too lax or to be too stringent, and we make that decision based upon the law and based upon the evidence that we have to evaluate. Now, one of the things that can happen if a person is lowly in somebody's presence and then they are bold, you know, on Twitter or email, you know, in writing after whatever, that can be a sort of cowardice, a hypocrisy, a brittleness, right? That can be the person out of a bunch of pride kind of reacting and writing later on and they didn't feel like they could do it at the time. And so that can be sort of this, this, this thing. Uh, Doug Wilson uses the term "thunder pups," right? He talks about the guys that uh, thunder and that you know, they're immature and they've got all this loud bark but they don't have any sort of power of presence or willingness to interact in person. So that's, uh, that's a... A useful category to think about. On the other side though, if you are behaving in such a way as to be slow to anger and to try to give benefit of the doubt and to try to work things, do you see how your initial reaction might be very mild? And then you find out more information and you're trying to deal with it and so you send something in writing and at that point you have more information and it might sound more biting. Do you understand how that could make you look like a thunder pup? That's the accusation that Paul is dealing with. Paul is, when he's present, he's founding that local church. He's interacting with them. He's dealing with problems. They're accepting his corrections in person. He leaves. He finds out they haven't fixed the stuff yet. He writes to them frustrated. And then he hears that they're doing stuff right. And then he has to write because there's a faction inside of it that he has to rebuke. All this back and forth, right? So, So Paul is dealing with a complex situation. And the latching on to things that sound overly negative when he's writing is a part of the way of attacking Paul. And so... How do we know the difference between the person who is the thunder pup versus a person who's slow to anger but then being pressed to become more and more stringent or negative? Well, one of the ways you would know that is if the writing trail helps to show any of that. Okay, the other thing would be, is the party who is now being more aggressive willing to meet in person? Okay, So those are the things that you would look to as examples for whether it's a pup situation or a slow to anger followed by being pressed to have to become more and more stringent. Now, um, when we think about that also, one of the things to be careful about there is to think about meetings in terms of the level of publicity that they have. So we should look at, again, Matthew 18 gives us a sense of how to deal with that. So if it's a private matter and somebody wants to denounce in writing, but then they're unwilling to meet privately, then that person is inappropriately refusing to deal with that. If there's a matter that has a few witnesses, and you're early on, and a person denounces something strongly in writing, and then is unwilling to meet with a small group, okay, there's a problem there, and if it's a public matter, then the party should be willing to deal with it publicly. And so that's a general important way of trying to, again, evaluate whether a person is exercising meekness and gentleness or not. Now, how do you get gentleness or meekness? How do you get control and how do you exercise control in such a way as to choose moderately and appropriately for the circumstance? Moderation comes from fortitude. Self-control comes from fortitude. Fortitude, I have Webster's definition for you here. This is one of my favorite definitions of all time. Fortitude, noun, Latin, fortitudo, from fortis, or strong. Ah, I forgot to put the footnote where it came from. This came from Webster's, you just Google Webster 1828. You'll find this is from that. So, didn't write this, took it from Webster. That strength or firmness of mind or soul... We're on page three now. That strength or firmness of mind or soul, which enables a person to to encounter danger with coolness and courage, or to bear pain or adversity without murmuring depression or despondency. Fortitude is the basis or source of genuine courage or intrepidity in danger, of patience in suffering of forbearance under injuries, and of magnanimity in all conditions of life. We sometimes confound the effect with the cause and use fortitude as synonymous with courage or patience. But courage is an active virtue or vice, and patience is the effect of fortitude. Fortitude is the guard and support of the other virtues. So, fortitude, strength of soul, strength of mind, is a very important virtue. Manliness is not manliness without fortitude. If we want to see what it is to differentiate men from boys, fortitude is sort of the manifest virtue that you would see. So how do we get fortitude? Well, fortitude, that strength of mind comes from a steadiness. It comes from knowing what is true. It comes from being clear about decisions that ought to be made. And So if you have wisdom, it allows you to keep your head. It allows you to not be blown about by every persuasive thing that comes your way. It allows you to make decisions quickly, coolly. And so meditating on the law of God, meditating on the gospel, are the things that build up wisdom. Those are the ordinary means for building up wisdom. Studying the word of God, meditating on it day and night. And so having that is what then yields that fortitude. So wisdom is the source of all virtue and fortitude which comes from being established in that wisdom, having knowledge, being able to show being able to argue with yourself so that you can have that stability fortitude is an establishment a firmness of the soul that comes from knowing the truth, being certain about it and being able to bat away all of the lies of the devil and the deceitfulness of sin so fortitude now I don't know about you, but I have never thought, enough, I have enough fortitude. Thank you very much. I don't know of any men who would say, I don't want more fortitude. We all know, as a man, fortitude is a thing that engenders respect and encourages others to follow. It is the thing that allows for a frame, a steady ability to have something where others can build a schedule, a Regime, a way of ruling that is steady where others can predict. And so fortitude is key to being able to build anything. And it helps you to avoid chasing after everything. Right? One of the temptations is anything that agitates. Right? the Anything that agitates is to just try to go after it. And so a big part of fortitude in terms of the patience it creates, the meekness, the self-control, the moderation, is it allows you to not throw your energy at irritants unwisely. So the ability to respond to irritants with measure and moderation, with self-control. Verse 2. So Paul is dealing with these things and he's choosing where to focus his attention. Notice he started the letter not by just swatting at the irritants. He wrote nine chapters talking about the good guys, counseling the good guys, praising the good guys, giving positive instruction to the good guys. And then he gives a decided period of attention to the bad actors. Verse 2, But I beg you that when I am present I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So, he has just expressed that he is lowly, he's humble with them in presence, and he's being bold with them in writing. And he's saying, he's asking, he's begging at the Corinthians when he is present will not have to receive the kind of boldness that some people accuse him of having this idea of a boldness that is a confidence of the flesh and also there is a boldness that he intends to have against those who are his opponents the false teachers and so he's saying I do not want to have to use boldness against you and I do not want to And will not use boldness according to the flesh that I'm being accused of using. So notice this claim. The opponents of Paul are claiming, one, that Paul is not bold, and two, that when he is bold, it is the boldness of the flesh. And so no matter what he does, whether he's bold or whether he's humble, it's always wicked. And so this is similarly what happens with John the Baptist. The Pharisees say, you know, this guy he's fasting and got the uncomfortable clothes and eating crazy insects. And so what is the deal there? And then Jesus, he's a wine-bibber, right? So this is sort of like, okay, so which is it? Is it the, the highly disciplined ascetic thing that you want? Or is it the person who's, who's enjoying the good things of life Like, what is it? What is the thing that you want? What is the song you want me to dance to? That is the thing that happens with the critics of Paul. So I beg you that I, when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold against some. So he does not want to have to exert a holy boldness, a righteous boldness against the people of the church. But he does want to and is ready to be bold against the false teachers and so he wants to differentiate targets so here we have that same principle again of the boldness being something that should be focused powerfully against false teachers and then there's this idea again of the the boldness according to the flesh so boldness according to the flesh would be domineering boldness according to the flesh would be a domineering behavior We do not want to be domineering. What is it to be domineering? To be domineering is to use physical presence and to use emotional appeals to try to wow people or bully them under. To be bold in proclaiming the truth is to refuse to be cowed and to be willing to speak boldly, plainly, even angrily with the truth, with argumentation. And so that boldness of presence... And boldness of speaking, clear teaching, rebuke, these are things that are sometimes called for and especially are called for against false teachers. And the boldness of the flesh in particular uses wowing and domineering to seek to move people along, shut people up, get compliance, or push them out. Verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war according to the flesh. We are in the world. We have bodies. But we are not to war according to the flesh. We are not to war according to the means of this world, which doesn't forbid us from waging war with physical weapons or engaging in defense. That is not what this is about. The point is what is the activity of the church? The church is not the wielder of the sword. Members of the church may be under certain circumstances, but the church itself is not authorized with the special use of the sword. What does it receive? It receives spiritual weapons in contrast to the fleshly ones. And so when we think about that, we move past just thinking about the sword. And what we go to is this warfare is not according to the means of the flesh. So it's not just a, you know, we don't seek to make men better by Freudian psychology. We don't seek to make men better by manipulation. We don't seek to make men better or to get them to do what we want by behavioristic schemes. What we do is we take the Word of God and we rely upon the Holy Spirit to bless it and we preach it for the transformation of souls and the building of institutions. The Word of God has power. It has power to transform and power to create. It has power to make broken men into whole men. To take broken homes and make them into places of beauty. To take churches that are falling apart and to see them reformed. And to take civil orders that are bandits with badges and make them into the righteous ruling. The Word of God is powerful to create and to recreate. We do not wage war according to the flesh. We wage war according to the Spirit. Verse 4 For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not of the flesh, they're not of this world, they're not things that obtain their power by the natural order. They are things that obtain power by the supernatural. They are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Look at this figure of speech. Strongholds, physical (laughs) fortress, high things, high ground, physical war. And then you've got arguments in the middle. Now the high thing is sometimes translated as um, presumptuous things. And so we have this idea of there's the physical and there's also words that go into the obviously mental. The reason for the physical words is to carry over the analogy of war and to say sometimes you look at minds or arguments and you think this is a hard argument to overcome or this is a mind that is impenetrable, to the Word of God. But that is a lie. The Word of God is powerful to overcome every false argument, to show why it is bankrupt at its base, why it has no foundation, why it is not strong, and it is able to take minds captive. It is able to take the strongest-looking minds. It is able to take those who seem to proudly hold themselves up against the Word of God and to bring them into submission by showing them the naked absurdity of their arguments. The word of God, the tools, the weapons of our warfare, are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. They are mighty for casting down arguments. And you can translate it as arguments, reasons, thoughts. Casting down arguments... So the warfare there is principally engaging against falsehood which is defended by even strong organized arguments. Systems that appear to be very difficult to assault. One of those might be the modern establishment of science which I don't know, if you become familiar with it, it kind of seems laughable. It does not seem like a strong position. And that's the point. The word of God trains us to be marvelous tacticians and excellent strategists that do not see the difficulty in pulling down the enemy position and so we find that our weapons are excellent a weapon might not seem excellent until you know how to use it the excellence of the weapon is increased in the eye of the beholder as one learns about its features and its utility becomes accustomed to the appropriate places to use different parts of the equipment and so a familiarity with the word of God a sense of how it feels in your hand when holding when using it to defend, when using it to strike at the enemy, that sense of familiarity, a competence that comes from exercise of discernment and the repetition of use, makes it so that we become less afraid of the battle. It is capable of casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, everything that presumes against, everything that that denies what God has taught. So the knowledge of God is given to us in the broad sense here, not just who is God, what is God, but all the things that he's revealed about himself. So we have the fullness of the revelation in the scriptures, and the scriptures provide for us the tools that we need to be able to tear down the strong places, to be able to tear down the enemy off of the high ground, and to be able to cast down their array of weaponry is able to bring every thought into captivity. Now every thought, I think, is great. It's true that every thought could be brought captive. But one of the things that we tend to do is we still, even though we hear every thought, we kind of think like a lot of thoughts. And every thought, the idea that every thought of every individual could be brought captive. Now the point here is not that every single individual ever, not every demon and not every reprobate person are going to be converted. But what's going to happen is they are going to be made subject they are going to be brought into captivity they will be enslaved or they will be willing subjects the elect will be willing subjects the reprobate will be enslaved into obedience and so that idea that christ will make every knee bow he will be victorious He's going to take every thought into captivity. And you could translate that as every mind. The idea of every mind. There is no thinker who is going to be able to overcome his power to take captive. He's going to bring every thought into captivity. It is mighty to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now that word obedience, the Greek is a little more literally like subjection or submission. So this sense of subjection and captivity, this is not so much just that he's going to make, it's not saying he's going to make everybody into a believer. He certainly has the power. Christ has the power to do that. But the point is he has the power to make everything submit to his order, to be subject to it. Even if they're not believers, he has the power to make it so that they are brought into captivity as those who warred against him. And he will have been victorious over them To bring them to accomplish his purposes. The word of God has that effect. It either converts a man or it advances the cause of Christ in some other way. Verse 6. And being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So the weapons that we have are mighty to take every thinker captive and to take make every thinker subject to Christ and these weapons are ready to punish all disobedience when the church's obedience is fulfilled when the church is ready to obey it applies these weapons effectively and one of the things it does is it punishes those who are in the church who will not be subject what is that punishment that punishment is rebuke admonition suspension from the table excommunication we have one other place in second corinthians where punishment is talked of it's not the same greek word but it is the same concept chapter 2 verse 6 i'm talking about the excommunication of the man who had been sleeping with his stepmother Paul said, this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. Okay, so excommunication there, a punishment. We're we're dealing with the idea that part of the weapons of our warfare are the weapons that are used for punishment. Now, does that mean that it's purely punitive? No, we know that chastisement is for discipline. We know the goal that we have in part in mind is to bring a person to repentance. But sometimes that is not God's intention. Sometimes God's intention is to have a person who is covenanted to receive curse and for the destruction of their body to not be something that saves their soul, but saves others by the deterrence and example. And so this idea, this warfare analogy, is something that we often take to apply to the idea of argumentation with apologetics, and we ought to. But notice the weapons of our warfare include the other ordinances. The act of punishment with the keys is a part of the weaponry of our warfare. We find a sort of weaponry language used about the other ordinances. The word of God being read, we get that, that's the sword, right? Okay, The word is the sword. And when it's preached, okay, fine, it's the sword. If we're teaching doctrine in terms of its orderly arrangement, okay, fine, there's the sword. The preaching includes exhortation, right? That's the difference between preaching and teaching. Teaching is laying out the doctrine. Preaching involves exhortation, do the thing. Okay, So all of that is weaponry. It's all sword activity. Counseling is private use of the sword. And we also know plainly that singing of psalms is a two-edged sword in our hands, right? And so the psalms being sung, we know, are a part of our warfare and our weaponry. The sacraments are a part of our weaponry. When we baptize, there is blessing or cursing that comes. When the Lord's Supper comes, there's blessing or cursing. The use of the keys, letting people in, kicking people out. Ordination is a part of our weaponry. It's an equipping of officers. And we call for God to bless and empower men to use weapons more powerfully and to lead units. Prayer is a part of our weaponry. We've talked about this often, the idea that you can call down the power of God on particular places instantaneously, anywhere in the world, that there is this enormous power in prayer, and you can pray for protection. It's a part of the weaponry that we have. Fasting is powerful to multiply prayer so you can cast out demonic power out of zones and persons where there is a stronghold effect. Thanksgiving and blessing. I think about the ordinance of the raising up of hands in blessing or the laying hands on and blessing. Fathers, you have the opportunity in family worship to bless your homes. Raise your hands when you bless your homes. Put the hands of blessing on your family. Make sure that you are doing a specific ordinance of blessing. And thanksgiving and fasting occur on an individual level, but we also need to make sure that as households we are calling times to fast or give thanks and also as a church. These are all a part of our weaponry. And we know that the covenanting acts that are involved in many of these things, covenanting is a part of the weaponry. It sets up hedges. It sets up walls. It sets up guards. Breaking covenant is a trap for the covenant breaker. It brings curse on their head. It is like digging a pit for them to fall into as a part of our defensive system. Covenanting creates a defensive array around us, and it brings blessing and strength for those who are applying covenants properly. Now, Those are spiritual weapons. The key one, the principal one, is the Word. But all of them are the equipment. If you are a soldier and you have many weapons, just because a rifle will do for most things doesn't mean that you should despise the grenades and other gear that you have. They all have their place. They all have their use. And to simply use the rifle every time... Is a foolish way to do battle. When you have other gear, you use the appropriate gear for the appropriate action. Verse 7. Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ's, let him again consider this in himself that just as he is Christ's, even so we are Christ's. Okay, so he's, this is the outward appearance. I often hear people bring complaints about outward appearance things in terms of things being better, how do you get more people, right? You know, you can have if you have a rock band and you know, whatever, you can gather a bigger crowd, if you there's all these outward things, the aesthetic things are the things that you can manipulate a crowd with the most. And so what the these people that are complaining against Paul are doing is they're picking on his aesthetics. aesthetics, Not aesthetics. They're not picking upon his fasting friends. They're, they're picking on the way he has outward appearance, the aesthetics. And so this outward appearance thing, they are always finding a way to complain about it. And as they go after the outward appearance, there is also sort of this complaint about Paul's preaching style, when he spoke in a particular moment, and so this constant complaining about those things. Paul's point is, the outward appearance is not reality. You young ones, if you are under the age of 30, you probably already know this, but you need to tell yourself this a lot. The outward appearance of things is not reality. The outward appearance of things is not reality. Not only will you often be judged for your appearance and what things look like. And not only will you be tempted to judge other things quickly on the basis of how they appear, on the outward, but you will have to find that you need to put into place things in your life to make it so that you do not make judgments swiftly based upon appearances. You will find that you have many difficulties, many troubles in your life that come from making judgments on the basis of an appearance. This person is pretty, they must be nice. This person is telling me something and when they hear it when you hear a case and you don't hear the other side, the first person to speak sounds right. And so this idea of the initial impression, naivete, foolishness is principally about making judgments swiftly on the appearance of things. And manipulators go after that. Social media is largely the mechanism of using first appearances to manipulate public behavior. So what you have to do is to train yourself to slow down evaluations, to look into a matter, to ask questions, to look at things, to get to know people, to give people time before you judge them positively or negatively. If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ's, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ's, even so we are Christ's. So we see this elsewhere, but the idea here is Paul is saying, first of all, if you think you're a Christian, you need to acknowledge that the apostles are Christians. If you think you're a Christian, you need to acknowledge that the apostles are Christian. Then, furthermore, if you think you're a teacher sent by Christ, you need to acknowledge that the apostles are teachers sent by Christ. This is what Paul is laying out here for both of those groups, the super apostles that he's fighting. And you saw that in 1 Corinthians a lot. He would always say, Okay, fine. You think you're a prophet? Okay, but you need to acknowledge that we are. think you're an apostle? Okay, you need to acknowledge that we are. So if you're contradicting our teaching, that's a problem. Using the Deuteronomy test that we keep talking about in the morning service, the idea that contradictions of past revelation show that a teacher is a false teacher. So we have the communion of the saints sharing together in the work, sharing together in gifting. And then there's the recognition of the authority of the apostolic teachers. So verse 8, we have an argument from this, or for this. For even if I should boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. So what he's saying here is, if he boasts in the authority that Christ has given First of all, we need to recognize as readers of the letter that his authority is for service. It's for building up. Now that gives us a test by the way. If a teacher does not edify, if an officer is not serving, is not building up, they are not a lawful officer. They are a hireling and a thief and a destroyer and a wolf. Edification is the purpose of the office of elder. If there is no edification, the office is not legitimate. This was one of the basic arguments uh, for Protestants in the Reformation as to why people could throw off their absentee bishops and false priests was to say, these people did not edify, they spoke mystery Babylon religion, they lied, they taught idolatry and false doctrine, they taught falsehood, or they were absent and didn't do the job. And so these people who claim offices, claim to be teachers, but do not edify, they should be removed, and if there is no power to remove people should separate. If the person uses the teaching authority of a teaching office to destroy souls, to to preach heresy, it's even worse. And so the destroying is opposite to the purpose. It is contrary to the purpose. It is the very alternative. And so as opposed to a a prophet, what you have is an anti-prophet. And so the destruction of the people of God by False doctrine is destructive, it is, it is killing, it is murdering the soul, it is contrary to the purpose of the office. So this is one of the tests. Is there edification or is there destruction? Is there truth being taught or is there error? The absence of the teaching is the absence of the office and the misuse of the office is also contrary to the office and those people ought to be removed or ought to be abandoned. So Paul says, if he talks about his legitimate authority, which is given for a purpose and not for the contrary to the purpose, he's not going to be ashamed. He wouldn't be ashamed because if he were ashamed, that would suggest that he's doing something shameful by defending his office. He's not. He's telling them about his authority for the purpose of helping them to see the good that can build them up. And he's not doing it to terrify them by letters. He's doing it to encourage them by letters. That's what he's saying. This lest I terrify you by letters thing and people get confused about it. We should believe that good officers are seeking our good rather than running away thinking they're going to harm us. We should, write to, we should try to run to help and be ruled by good officers out of a fear of missing out of blessing. Verse 10 For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. His bodily presence is weak. So Paul apparently didn't walk in looking like a million bucks. Paul's physique may have had something to be wanting for. His clothing may have been less than ideal. His bodily presence is weak. And his speech, contemptible. He doesn't follow all the forms of beauty that the Greeks want. All the rhetorical forms. He doesn't use all the flower. He doesn't use all the order. Where's your introduction and three points and your conclusion? I didn't hear any poems. right? There, there's, not, there's none of the standard organization of beauty. The homiletics professor apparently would have given Paul an F. His speech is contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be in deed when we are present. He's saying, all right, before I was gentler, nicer. I'm being bold to you now. Why am I being bold? Because there's stuff I need to say. And if you don't repent when I get there, I will be just as bold. And you will have the opportunity to compare the letters side by side. With how I look, then. Verse twelve. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Right. The the common thing to do in the church growth crowd is to compare the methods, compare the styles, compare all that. How big is your church? Okay. How, you know all that kind of stuff. Right. All this kind of this. Measuring each other by each other, your success by the others. This is a humanism applied to the church. Humanism says man is the measure of all things. So, what is normal? And you hear this. This is the, you just heard the word normal, and here's what you thought. You thought the way people behave most of the time. Okay? Normal means normative having to do with the idea of the norm, the mean, the standard, we are used to a humanistic usage of the word normal. When we say normal, what we mean is the things that aren't odd to our culture. So we hear normal, and we think what we're used to. That's a humanistic presupposition. To say that what is normal is what people tend to do. What is normal is to do what Christ does. What is normal, what is normative, what is a law order that we should follow is what Christ says. Comparing ourselves by what other people do, comparing our church to other churches, comparing our behaviors to what the, you know, Big Eva Baptist Church down the street does, or comparing ourselves to what other people who happen to call themselves Presbyterian tend to do, or anything like that, comparing ourselves to them and saying, if we're not doing it the same way they are, we must be doing it wrong, that's a lie from the pit of hell. You compare yourself to the Bible. The Bible. That's the authority. Christ's word is the authority. we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Look, if we want to look to anything, what we need to do is we need to find the ways that our brethren are better than us and seek to grow after their example. We need to look to the greats of the faith and follow after their example. But more importantly than that, we need to look after Christ and his law and measure ourselves by that and we will find That there is lots of work to be done. We need to look to the work to be done. As opposed to comparing ourselves to each other, being envious, and fighting over the spoils of what's already here. I have a successful lawyer that I know. This is one of the things that in the law firm, lawyers tend to be litigious. Is that surprising to you? So, lawyers tend to want to fight for winnings, and they have a tendency to either knife out or to knife in. People that knife in are trying to figure out how to split up the spoils of what's already there. People that knife out are trying to take spoils from the outside and bring them in to be shared. Now, our tendency should not be to go knife to hurt people and take things. What we should try to do is to gather and build and produce and bring in rather than squabbling over the things that are already inside. And so rather than measuring ourselves by ourselves and being inward focused in our battles, we have to be inward focused in some ways and outward focused in others. So look at point 19 at the bottom of page four. We must have an inward focus to build. Where do we build? Do not waste your treasure and time building outside of the church. Do not build with covenant relationships that are not covenant relationships. Only build where there's covenant relationship. Build in your homes. Build in the church. Build in Christian states. Build in your relationship with God. So you want to focus on covenant places. And if you're going to make voluntary associations like a business partnership, make sure to build them with Christians. The inward focus to build and to heal. This is the goal. This is what we want to spend our time on. We want to spend our time building stuff. And we want to spend our time healing our wounded. Augustine had this analogy that When we look at the church, the church is is, is a military camp in some ways, yes. We are to be militant and to conquer. But it is also a hospital where those who are wounded, as they are made alive by the word of God, they have many injuries, many injuries, many injuries. And it is the work of the saints to tend to the souls of those who have been harmed and to help to bind up their wounds and to prepare them to return to battle. We care for each other. We tend to each other's wounds. We give each other balm, and we help each other to carry on. And that work of the hospital work of the church is something that we are called to, in addition to working as a church militant to overcome the world. The other inward work to be done That might interrupt is the inward work to protect and remove harmful actors from the church. To push wolves that are in sheep's clothing out. We want to remove the mask, remove the sheep's clothing. So that wolves are just wolves. Wolves that are just wolves are far less dangerous than wolves that bleat. Wolves that bleat get closer Wolves that bleat are close enough to bite. Wolves that bleat, that have the appearance of wooliness. Those wolves are the ones that eat your bread and enter your house to find bad things to say, and they say it in the streets. And so there's a danger of inward wolves and actors that harm which is why false teachers in the church must be fought more vigorously and more quickly than false teachers outside. It's, I can look at somebody who's plainly godless and says some useful things and then says a bunch of false things and deal with them more easily than a person who claims to be reformed claims to be a christian claims to be a righteous brother and teaches heresy bringing it in under all those names there's an obligation to fight that aggressively why because it stops you from building and it stops you from healing because it injects poison into the sheep and it stops them from building together so then there's the outward focus when should we focus outwardly We should focus outwardly to fight, to keep the wolves out, and to take on the world, and to bring people and resources into the church. We go and we focus on getting stuff out there. We bring people in. The wicked pile up silver like mountains so that we can take it over. The the wicked are given talents so they might be converted and made into the righteous that can work for the glory of God, or they can be in subjection outwardly being used of God, even though they don't will it, even though these people don't know it. They can be used by God. Verse 13. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. Okay, so officers should not exercise authority except in the sphere that they've been given a jurisdiction. So sphere sovereignty. Notice the sphere which especially includes you. So Abraham Kuyper didn't invent sphere sovereignty in the 1800s. It's a shocker for you, okay? Who invented sphere sovereignty? God. And the Apostle Paul talked about it, literally using the word sphere, by the way. So, just sphere sovereignty is not an invention of Dutch Calvinists from the 1800s. The idea of a sphere of authority or responsibility, a jurisdiction. We, however, will not boast beyond measure. We won't boast beyond the measure of where our boundaries are, is the idea there? But within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, okay, beyond measure, versus the sphere, okay. So there's a limited jurisdiction, a sphere which especially includes you or namely includes you. For here's the argument for why it includes them: we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. There is a special claim of authority by those who do the founding work. Here's what I didn't just say. What I did not just say is that a church planter who plants a church has a higher authority over other elders. That is not what I said. However, if a guy planted a church and he hadn't done anything to disqualify himself and he were not made an elder, like just imagine we'd done this and the first time we did a vote on elders or whatever, somebody went, you know, we don't want you. And there was no justification. That would be a sort of wicked deed. That would be a you remove somebody who's done the work to get a thing in order without any sort of proper cause. Now, if there's cause, okay, fine. You remove the person. That's the way it is. But if a person does organizing work, the expectation is that that person should be recognized based upon the work and for the work. And so, the Apostle Paul planted the church at Corinth and he's saying You should acknowledge me as an apostle. I'm an apostle in general, but I'm also the apostle that planted your church. And so there's this idea of there's an honor that's involved in the planting work. So that's why we we generally, we kind of understand that. That's why people like the term, like calling themselves founders of such and such or whatever. there's 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 an honor in founding things. Verse 15, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. So when officers begin to seek to claim authority in other people's spheres, that's an indicator of pride, of arrogance, of usurpation and so carefully guarding jurisdictions of particular churches and carefully guarding jurisdictions like households and the rights of individuals and the difference between the church and the state these are all ways of guarding the difference of jurisdiction and to try to throw off lawful officers is a type of usurpation and so notice what he's saying here is hey I'm trying to use legitimate authority I'm not trying to claim authority I don't have and I'm trying to get resources out of the sphere of authority that I have to get more work done that's what office is for if you have office it's so you can do good work right? so office is for good work and the support of the people is so that more work can get done so Paul wants the support of Corinth to do good work so that Paul can get more work done he's saying I did work I helped you, I helped establish you now I'm expecting you to help me to get more work done now you might call that the law of the fruits of labor, he who builds has a claim and what's built, that sort of thing we find that in ordinary dominion of the individual we find that with households and with church office it's important that we not turn church office into private property but it's also important to recognize that there's something here that Paul is applying to church office Now, one of the interesting ways that we have seen this in history is William of Orange, for example, in the Netherlands, helped to establish the Dutch Republic and he was made the first general stadtholder across the various provinces. George Washington helped to fight to establish the American Republic and he was acknowledged and he was given the first presidency. There are some of those things, you see a tendency for men who do special work in founding for that in terms of the honor, and we've seen that in a lot of Protestant culture historically. Um, Now, when you look at the law order, the expectation is that work done will be rewarded and that the reward will help more work to be done. When people look at law orders, which is being talked about a lot now, there are basically only six ways that anybody argues for how authority should work in the public spheres. Okay, so look at point 24. The first argument, the first position is anarchy. What should the state do? Nothing. What's the legitimate state? None. Right? Okay, well, how about the church? Apply that to the polis that is the polis of God, the city of God. Okay, what's the, what's the legitimate church? None. I'm spiritual. I just, like, church for me is hanging out with my bros and doing whatever. Like, we don't have to have church government. Okay the anarchy in the modern American Christendom-ish thing is largely people who don't believe in church membership. Church membership is gasp-worthy to a lot of people. The idea that there's a list of persons who are able to be called to give an account is something that you find is rare. We all swim in rarefied waters, so we think that that's kind of like, yeah, generally a lot of people are going to acknowledge the idea of church discipline and stuff like that, but amongst the relatively small circle that we swim in right we're talking about like okay the PCA has church membership and they have church discipline to some extent great there's 400,000 of them okay the OPC has church discipline and it has church membership great there's 30,000 of them the RPCNA has church membership and church discipline great there's 8,000 of them okay so we're like, ah, conservative reformed world. Look at our numbers, less than a million across all of the conservative confessional denominations that we can manage to pull together into the loosest definition of reform possible. Right? This is, this is what we've got. So do you have any idea how rare church membership is and how rare church discipline is? And so it doesn't seem normal at all. But the question is, what does God's word say? So as we look at political order, people tend to be anarchic. Natural law is also common, and so you go: How should things be ordered? Natural law. Natural law is an appeal to. Typically, you're going to find this idea of, of some sort of a, an experience or what can be observed in nature. Um, natural law can be defined in sort of three ways. Well, there's a fourth way, but here are the four definitions of natural law. One: What you observe in the world. Two what you can derive from a preset definition of a thing and derive out of it for its good. Three, what feels right. Or four, the law that is written in the content of men's heart as a set of categories put there by God. So depending on what you mean by that, normally the most common use is going to be the method where you look around at the world and you derive things out of nature. That is what you find in Locke. That's what you're going to find in Thomas Aquinas. This is what the Catholic scholars talk about. This is what is generally meant by natural law, is observation of the world. So you also find social contract theory. Natural law, you don't get God's law. You can't pretend like observing the world is going to get you the same stuff as the content of the Bible. There are all sorts of problems epistemologically with using empiricism, but you're also going to run into the fact that the church very specifically doesn't get its government from the natural order the church is a supernatural creation the church is given in the covenant of grace it is not a part of the natural order of things it is established in genesis 3 it is not established in genesis 1 or 2 so the governmental order of the church is not a natural law issue Social contract is a voluntary association, and it sounds really good to most Protestants. Here's the thing about social contract. Social contract, you go, oh, if we agree to things, that sounds like covenant. But the word social contract is very specifically not covenant theory. The point of social contract is to put the authority in the will of humans. It's a contract that forms the authority. Covenants are imposed by God, whether you want them or not, deal with it. Contracts are I agreed, you agreed, we all agreed, agree. Right? There's a difference between the imposition of a covenant and a contract that we make. God defines in a, con- in a covenant, man defines in a social contract. A social contract has no basis for the limits of authority. It says whatever we agree to. Divine right is the idea that certain persons have the right to rule, and they get to decide what the government does. This is sort of the apostolic succession, I tell you what to do thing. That's, you find that in Rome. And you find absolute monarchies in the history of the world for the divine right argument. Divine law is the assertion that God creates the institutions, he defines their authority, he defines how they operate, he defines how you select rulers. That's the historic Protestant Presbyterian position. And pragmatism, do it works. That is the church growth model. So those are the political theories that are generally argued for in the political realm applied to the church. Those are ecclesiastical theories of power. It is most obvious in the church that divine law is necessary. And so the Apostle Paul is giving for us some of the laws that we use to judge men who rule. And we're thinking about rules to help to reduce what a jurisdiction is. And so some of the big errors for jurisdictions that exist are, first of all, the papacy. The papacy, as Antichrist, claims authority over every church everywhere and says that any church that is not in communion with Rome is no church. This is usurpation on the highest scale possible. It is not imaginable to have a type of usurpation that is greater. If you come up with it, let me know. I will enjoy laughing with you. But the papacy has managed to make the grandest claims possible. They are in control of every church everywhere. And they tell you what to think and what to will. If they tell you black is white, you must believe it. You can find all of these things. Just Google it. It's fun. Caesaro-Papism, the Eastern Orthodox believe that the autocracy, the, the, the Caesar is Pope. He chooses what to do in the church. That makes the church a department of the state. You will find um, a sort of autonomy where the church gets to define itself according to the wills of men. And then there is theonomy, which is the right ordering of things where you have the proper spheres Amongst those who claim to be theonomic, you have had various forms of government get organized to deal with the jurisdictions and to try to separate out powers in the church. So you have a list there. Congregationalism asserts that the rights of authority all belong in the congregation at the local level. Independency will claim that there are elders at the local level who get to choose. Now, you can can see those words used interchangeably sometimes, but when you're trying to specialize between them, The idea that the congregation rules as opposed to the officers is typically a way of saying congregationalist versus independency. That's what those two terms are useful to compare. Low Presbyterianism says the people choose officers, there's a final check on the officers for excommunication, and at the same time, there are courts of appeal that are outside of the local church, and that those might have a role in terms of ordination as well. High Presbyterianism is going to say, the officers impose officers on local churches and the officers are the ones who exercise the keys without any involvement by the people. And then there's episcopacy which is bishops. A single monarchical bishop who rules in a local church or in a region. Functionally speaking, most Protestant churches are basically episcopal because they have a pastor who has the authority making decision as a CEO. And what we find in churches that are explicitly Episcopal is that they have some sort of a bishop typically who is over some local elder. So you'll have one elder locally and you'll have a bishop above them. And so you find that in Anglican or Episcopal churches, also in Lutheran churches typically. So these types of government. So our form of government here is low Presbyterian. We believe in a rule by officers, the congregation has certain authorities congregation has the power to fire officers the congregation is a final check on the removal of a person by excommunication the congregation chooses officers it requires the officers to agree with the selection and it requires the officers to agree with the excommunication so there's two checks there's two keys okay so that is low Presbyterianism low Presbyterianism is a structured thing to limit power and limit abuse and to make things public and transparent And so low Presbyterianism is something that you will typically find, or high Presbyterianism, you will find in the Reformed churches on the continent, in Scotland, in England, and in America, the Presbyterian churches range between those, and in America, they have tended towards a sort of low Presbyterianism, and in Scotland, they have tended towards a type of high Presbyterianism, this is historically what has happened. So, that is a bit of what you see in history. Verse 17. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. So we look at all these different claims, all these different theories. How does the, where are the spheres? Where do they hold up? What extent does any one church officer have authority in? What's the proper model or source of everything? You can't just hear what people say, you need to judge all of these things by what God commands. The study of the scriptures to know what type of government God has instituted in his church is necessary to know what kind of government to honor. And then you have to look at qualifications of particular persons to determine whether they should be the men that you honor as officers. And you choose officers to fight. Officers will be covered in blood. Officers will be battered and bruised. And officers will make lots of enemies. If they don't make enemies and they don't fight, you have elected effeminate men to office. If they fight unjustly, you have chosen domineering men for office. And so the question is, you cannot simply look at whether they fight or not. You have to look at how they fight, who they fight, and why they fight. And so you must judge. He, he who glories should glory in the Lord and not in himself, not in his own greatness, not in his own gifting. But rather, what we should look to is what does the Lord commend? So we use the tests of the law to judge officers. And some of the main tests are given here. Verse 20, or, sorry, point 27 says lawful calling. There are only three kinds of lawful calling. One is a providential call of necessity. If there is nobody to preach the word, then anybody can preach the word. When there's no one to do it, someone must stand up. That is not the same thing as taking an office to yourself. It is simply the need to do it. Then there's this idea of entering into office, which can either occur in a settled state or an unsettled state. An unsettled state is when not all of the mature elements are present in a church, but a true church exists And there's a call to office. That's different from being called to do the work. Providence can call a person to do the work in an emergency. But it requires the work of the church to call a man to enter office. And then there's also the settled call, which is ordinarily the election by the people and the laying on of hands by officers. So you have to consider whether there's justification for things like a providential call or an unsettled call these are the things to consider. When are those things justified? And you look at callings and claims to calling. The next thing you judge for a do, for an officer is what doctrine do they teach? Do they teach what the church has reached? Do they teach what the scriptures say or do they make stuff up? Are they teaching contrary to the gospel or do they teach the true gospel? And so the maturity the church has reached is the Westminster Standards. And then we look at the practice. What's the maturity of practice that the church has reached? In worship, government, and cases of conscience. In worship, we have the carefully applied regulative principle. In government, low Presbyterianism, according to the word of God alone. And in cases of conscience, we should carefully look at what has been attained to by the church. And frankly, the Westminster Larger Catechism on the Ten Commandments lays out for us categories of how to understand the law very well organized, very understandable, very systematically. So denials of the rule of practice that's been attained to and denials of the doctrine that's been attained to are things that should make you go, I am concerned about this authority. So those are the tests for how we would look at things in our time. It's a lot. I'm happy to, if there's any comments, questions, or objections from the voting members, stand at your request.